Hello and welcome to the IIF Global Regulatory Update Podcast. I'm Katie Rismanchi, a Senior Policy Advisor in the Regulatory Affairs Department at the Institute of International Finance based in Washington, D.C. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Raf Hussein, Global Head of Strategic Planning and Stress Testing at HSBC, Ben Carr, Analytics and Capital Modeling Director at Aviva, and my colleague, Jeremy McDaniels, Senior Advisor on Sustainable Finance here at the IIF. In this podcast, we're going to discuss one of the key debates getting underway in sustainable finance policy, the relationship between climate-related risks and the capital framework. This was the theme of a major conference hosted by the Bank of England and UK Prudential Regulation Authority in mid-October 2022. The objective of the conference was to facilitate discussion on the complex issues associated with evaluating whether or not the bank and insurance capital frameworks need to be adjusted to take account of climate-related financial risks. The IIF submitted a paper at that conference and Jeremy and I were fortunate enough to be able to present it. Today we will reflect on the IIF research and other papers presented and we'll look ahead at what further research and analysis might be helpful in the coming years. Please note that the views aired today are personal views of the speakers and not necessarily official views of their firms. Raf and Ben, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on this IIF podcast. Perhaps you can start by saying a few words about yourselves and telling us where you're speaking from today. Uh, Raf, I'll turn to you first, please. Thanks, Katie. Um, so my name is Raf Hussain. Uh, I currently look after strategic planning and stress testing at HSBC based in London. My main professional involvement with the climate change agenda is focused on scenario analysis and stress testing. We've been spending the last two years or so building out HSBC's first-gen capabilities in this area uh, and using them to sort of conduct regulatory exercises as well as explore risks and opportunities from an internal perspective. We are quite rapidly moving on to strategic usage of these capabilities, uh, whether it's for shaping strategy, setting risk appetite, or, or thinking about calibrating capital. So the, the whole climate capital topic is quite a timely one. I think it will be important for us all to get right, um, and I'm really happy to be here discussing it. Thank you so much, Raf. And Ben? Hi, Katie. Um, and thanks very much for the invitation. So I lead um, work at Aviva in terms of embedding climate-related risks into our risk management and reporting frameworks based in London, which is where we are and headquarters are. And I think it, as uh, has already been said, it's a really timely conversation, um, you know, certainly as part of that embedding, starting to think about how you incorporate climate risks into risk appetite and into your capital allocation processes is absolutely central and clearly you know, there's a strong link between that and capital requirements. In addition to the work I do internally at Aviva, I'm also um, sort of day-to-day lead of the PRA, Bank of England and FCA's Climate Financial Risk Forum Scenario Analysis Working Group, as we published a number of guides for the industry to help them be, build capability in this uh, in, on this topic. And, um, you know, it's something we've also done a lot of internally. So we also produce quite a bit of scenario analysis ourselves now, and we've incorporated that into our climate-related financial disclosures for the last three or four years. So that's something that is certainly getting embedded both into our disclosures and also into some of our pillar two um, reporting as well to, to the Bank of England. 
That's excellent. Um, thank you both. And, and please do bring in those insights from your, uh, your own firm's experiences and your engagement with other initiatives into the conversation today. So we wanted to use the time to talk a bit about uh, what we learned at the conference um, and our thoughts on how the agenda might move forward in the coming years. And hopefully we'll come up with some practical suggestions for the public and private research agendas. I can kick off with some reflections on what I saw as key themes at the conference. Um, overall, I think it was a, a careful and technical discussion of the nature of the uncertainty around climate related risks and how this interacts with the banking and insurance prudential frameworks. And it's a very difficult question because there are lots of layers to climate risk and also to the prudential regime. For example, one of the challenges discussed relates to time horizons in terms of banking. Chris Faint from the Bank of England noted that we don't capitalize for risks beyond a maximum of five years in the bank prudential framework. And a lot of that horizon comes through macro financial stress testing because the pillar one requirements are generally intended to capture unexpected losses over a one year period or less. So, of course, while some climate related risks can crystallize over that horizon, many will emerge beyond that horizon and some physical risks are projected to grow in the decades to come. I think in terms of the discussion, it's fair to say that there was not a clear consensus that changes to capital requirements are required or appropriate today partly recognizing that mismatch between the time horizon for many climate risks and capital requirements and capital planning, but also recognizing the risk of unintended consequences which can come with any policy change. The, the topic of mandates um, was, uh, was a theme. So mandates of prudential authorities and motivation for using tools Representatives of authorities that presented or intervened at the conference were clear in communicating that their uh, mandates for taking action on climate risk are microprudential and or macroprudential, depending on their you know, specific institution, um, and that this has to be motivated on risk grounds. And this is a position the IIF has been advocating for in recent years, and it generally rules out adjusting capital requirements to incentivize or disincentivize certain activities, as industrial policy might do. What this means in practical terms for authorities is still being worked out. Uh, Micro-PRU supervisors increasingly are focusing on fostering good climate risk management by banks and insurers, which the IIF believes is an extremely powerful way to respond to climate risk drivers. And it's even earlier days in terms of understanding the role of macro oversight. There was an interesting paper presented at the conference by Professor David Aikman at King's Business School, which suggested that macro authorities may need to pay attention to whether economically vital sectors continue to get the funding they require during the transition, um, something I informally referred to as avoiding a transition credit crunch. So if I can if I can turn to you, Raf and Ben, for your takeaways, particularly about the comments on the objectives of micro-pru and macro-pru policy at the conference. And I'll turn to Raf first, please. Thanks, Katie. But I think, first of all, I think the conference was highly engaging uh, and a step in the right direction for the industry at all. Um, it was clear from the discussions and debates that took place that this is a very complex topic. Um, and there are a number of viable ways we can move forward with it. So there's lots of work to do before we come to some form of coherent aligned industry view. With respect to the comments on the objectives of micro and macro prudential specifically, 
I think it's incredibly important to get this right. There was some debate around whether capital should be used to incentivize the transition to net zero or whether it should stick to its existing remit of ensuring there's sufficient capital to absorb risks on the balance sheet. I think the, the Bank of England have made it quite clear in stating it should be the latter, and I find myself agreeing with this also. I personally think this is a bit of a Pandora's box dilemma. If we use capital to promote green, then why stop there? Why not have allowances for building hospitals or schools or any other socially beneficial funding? I think this capital debate should not exist in its remit beyond risk management and mitigating or identifying risks and, and capitalising for those uncertain risks. As a byproduct of capturing transition risk, for example, we, we may indeed find capital helps promote decarbonisation um, as the high emitting companies without a credible transition plan are likely to attract high transition risks and, and therefore high capital requirements. Uh, and maybe this type of indirect taxing of brand via, via capital is okay, but we, we shouldn't set out with that as a primary objective. So to me, that said, I think it does seem like that there is an agreement on this. And I think we quite urgently need to globally accept, we need a globally accepted set of objectives that frame how it is we solve this problem. Thank you, Raph. I think that's really interesting how you discuss that counterparties that don't have transition plans or make other efforts might face higher transition risk. And if you just capture transition risk in your framework, you can you can sort of get to this question in a risk based way. That's very interesting. Ben, can I can I bring you in for your thoughts? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, firstly, I, I, I totally agree. I think it was a really valuable conference and you know, I really commend the Bank of England for for organising it and, and shining a light on this year. So I think it's a you know, very timely debate. And I think I'd also agree that it's um, it's vital when considering any changes to the regulatory framework that's done in a holistic way and in a risk based way. Um, and it's also, I think, and this came out in some of the discussion, and I think it's really important, again, to, to recognise that, you know, if you're going to look for a whole economy transition, then there are many necessary regulatory and policy measures that need to be taken, such as carbon pricing, for example, that clearly do not fall within the remit of financial supervisors and regulators. So, you know, we shouldn't be expecting financial regulators to solve all of this. There are lots of things that need to happen across the economy, and there are lots of ways in which regulation and policy needs to be adapted to, to support the transition. I think another point that came out, which I think is important when thinking about any changes you might make to the regulatory framework, is that you don't want to just end up pushing activity outside the regulatory perimeter, you know, because that ultimately won't drive the fundamental change that's required to transition to a low carbon economy. So again, I think that's that's an important uh, point to bear in mind when when contemplating any changes or adjustments to regulatory frameworks. I think having said all of that, um, it, it's also key not to underestimate the role of financial services industry in financing the transition. One of the things that I think is missing a little bit from the debate at the moment is whether the current capital regimes are sort of getting in the way of the transition as a result of, of them being largely built on historic financial data and information that potentially is biased against new low carbon technologies as to compared to sort of in carbon, carbon intensive ones. And, you know, if that were the case, then you could end up with a situation where the current capital regimes end up inadvertently encouraging the build up of systemic physical climate change risk over time, which clearly would be would be inappropriate. So I, I, I think that's that's one area, one area of focus that 
needs more attention in this debate is to is to make sure that we're currently not you know we don't have a capital regimes that are currently actually you know incentivizing the wrong behavior and inadvertently building up um you know significant systemic uh, climate change risk over time that's a really interesting point so as well as looking at incentives of any new policies what's the incentives embedding within within the current framework that's a that's a really interesting point if we could talk next about something else um that was presented at the conference that i think got a lot of traction um it was a, a new paper authored by staff at the us federal reserve board um, a staff discussion paper called climate change and the role of regulatory capital a stylized framework for policy assessment and in there was a, an interesting conceptual framework which sets out the author's views on what you'd need to know about climate related risks to warrant an adjustment to different parts of the bank capital framework it was in in particular in that paper so they look at minimum requirements risk weights buffers etc and specifically it talks about what climate change could do to the distribution of losses um, which is a central concept of course for pricing risks or provisioning within accounting frameworks and setting capital requirements raf what are your not specifically on that paper but you know on the broader question um what are your reflections on the nature of climate risk drivers and and how can banks account for the nature of that those risk drivers in capital planning yes look, i think um i actually agree with what i thought the um the paper was and the session was really interesting um especially the focus on how climate can impact the distribution of losses and actually from the analysis we've been doing i think we are going to work off the assumption that climate change can and probably will increase both the mean and variance of losses. Anyway, in, in terms of the nature of climate risks and to your questions, I think there's three things to note. Firstly, I think these risks are gradually evolving, non-cyclical and often irreversible that are new to us all. Secondly, they will, dis they will materialize in addition to the more traditional economic and idiosyncratic risks that we're typically accounting for in our capital framework. Uh, and finally, whilst these risks are new, they are going to manifest themselves through existing and more traditional risk channels like credit and market risk and op risk. So some of it will be captured over time. Um, but with this in mind, in terms of how we capture these new risks within our capital and accounting frameworks, I think it's going to be about building on what we already have, which is fit for purpose for today's risk profile, rather than starting from scratch. And just building that to be more specific, with respect to the current capital framework, my, my current view is that Pillar one, my current view in terms of current capital framework and, and climate, I think from, from a pillar one perspective, this is probably going to be a mid to long term area of focus. I think the material climate risks will be captured through the existing risk channels, but we will need to enhance models at some stage to be able to isolate climate risks and accelerate their identification as well as ensure adequately that we're adequately capturing these risks in the current framework. Pillar 2A is probably somewhere where we can start to do something near term to top up pillar one for any material risks not adequately captured and, and to just what do i mean by that for example uh, we may want to hold more capital for material physical risks over and above the level historically experienced or we may want to hold additional capital for expected transition risks headwinds not captured in current rating grades for example however personally i think Pillar 2B is probably where we will focus most of our efforts on in the near term. And like various 
climates and analysis and stress tests that have been conducted and, and have been identified, it's not expected that transition or physical risk will lead to standalone capital implications in the near term. Um, however, they may lead to drag on performance, and that makes us more prone to systemic shocks. So I think here we would end up leveraging scenario analysis to assess our ability to absorb a traditional macroeconomic shock alongside periods of transitional physical risk stress and acknowledging the uncertainty that comes with extending the P2B time horizon. This is one of the debates we had at the conference. I think that future periods of physical transition risk stresses may need to be sort of front-loaded, accelerated and considered within this sort of existing five-year window that we carry out these assessments on. But that's, I mean, this is just my view. I think I think it's uh, a critical next step will be for the industry and regulators to have a single and aligned view of what climate risks the current framework can or can't pick up and therefore what changes are required so that everyone is singing off the same scoring sheet going forward. Thank you, Raf. That you covered a lot there. Um, really interesting. And I think the comments on scenario analysis, um, uh, we can really dive into those. We can come back and dive into those in a moment because I think there's a long way to go on climate scenario analysis and it can be a very informative tool. Ben, before we go to climate scenario analysis, maybe we can just have a bit of a discussion about um, the insurance capital planning and, and capital framework, because obviously the balance sheet of insurers is quite distinctive. Um, climate risk drivers can interact with that balance sheet in different ways than for banks. In your opinion, what might those characteristics um, imply for insurance capital planning? Sure. So I think, I mean, at one level, I guess, you know, if you look at the, the asset side of the balance sheet, um, insurers tend to be investing in in companies and corporates. So in some ways, the physical and transition risks you're going to see on, on the assets on, the, on their own are going to be quite similar to the sorts of risks that are going to manifest themselves for a banking portfolio. Um, you know, there are slight differences in that you tend to be investing in um, securities, uh, I guess, generally, rather than you know, necessarily making loans to companies and insurers also because they it's particularly life insurers will tend to have much longer term liabilities they're backing then you may be investing more in sort of infrastructure and that sort of thing where you have sort of longer term investments uh, compared to banks but but otherwise i think the, the risks you're likely to see are, are fairly similar on the asset side as you would on a banking port on, the, on banking portfolios on the liability side as you say then you know i think it that is can be quite different so you know if we start with um life uh, insurance then clearly um you know there are various studies out there that suggest that you know mortality rates could be impacted on the one hand you know with physical climate change you could have more extreme hot and cold days um you know potentially having sort of vector-borne diseases moving to areas that currently are not so exposed temperate environments that could impact though that sort of mortality um longevity profile and actually, even on the transition side, there's potential, particularly um, if there are changes in, in pollution rates um, that could impact mortality and longevity assumptions. So you see a big reduction in pollution as a result of transition to a sort of one and a half degree world. And that potentially could have quite significant implications for your, your mortality and longevity rates going forward. On the GI side, general insurance side, PNC side, I mean, we were already doing a lot of modelling of um, weather, if you like, weather-related perils. Um, so, you know, whether it's flood or uh, windstorm or tropical cyclone, 
um, wildfire. These are all things that are already being insured um, and we already have quite sophisticated modelling uh, to tackle uh, and understand those risks. But, you know, those are all based on current climate conditions. So one of the key challenges for insurers um, at present is how do you sort of climate condition some of those tools so you can get a sense of how your exposure to floods, wildfire, tropical cyclone, et cetera, could change or could evolve over time. Uh, and therefore what the impact might be on your business profile, you know, um, the sort of the, the mix of your business over time. And I think it's also about then thinking what, what are the implications for your, your policyholders in terms of affordability of insurance or even being able ultimately to be able to obtain assurance at all if they're in particularly high risk areas? So I think there are lots of you know, really interesting questions that insurers need to grapple with when thinking about how climate change can impact their business, not only on the asset side of the balance sheet, but also on the liability side. And, you know, the scenario analysis and work that we're starting to do is helping us to start to understand that. But certainly there are clearly a lot of data and tool gaps that, that exist at the moment and a lot of work that needs to be done to sort of repurpose some of the, the models that we currently have in order to be able to help us to really sort of understand and start to think through how our business is going to evolve and how we manage these risks going forward. Thank you, Ben. That was a really clear summary, I think, of, of um, some of the considerations on the insurance side and, and how they some ways similar and some ways different um, to the banking um, industry. Um, and obviously that's important because we want as much alignment in terms of baseline approach as, as we can um, across the financial uh, industry. But obviously we have to recognise some of the differences and, and of course, some of the starting differences in terms of the prudential frameworks as well. So we've all mentioned, I think, climate scenario analysis, climate stress testing um, already. That came up a lot in the in the conference um, and how it can be an important tool for risk management and also potentially to inform policymaking. Raf, you, you spoke about this uh, during the conference and you've already mentioned it um, uh, on this podcast. But can you tell us a bit more about how you at HSBC are using climate scenario analysis as part of strategic planning and also capital planning and that the two uses might be be different. But if you can say a bit more about that, it would be great. Yeah, sure. Uh, generally speaking, we're using scenario analysis to help us understand the various paths um, that the world might take to achieve net zero. Uh, what, what's, what do we need to believe in order to get to that state? Uh, what are the opportunities and risks? Um, in these hypothetical worlds. But we are also using scenario analysis to understand how bad things might get if we fall short of net zero. And that could be ranging from marginally falling short to drastically falling short. Whilst we may well, hope that this doesn't play out, we are using this to understand using this to understand how we might mitigate these risks. But this and this is also this analysis is also helping us to strike the right conversations across the bank, particularly around the actions we might want to take today as well as going forward. But with respect to strategic planning, we're using this analysis to really shape our climate-related strategy. For example, how we might pivot our balance sheet to reach both commercial and climate-related targets. Um, and we, another example would be ensuring how our financial projections accurately reflect the climate-related risks and opportunities. So we're, we're trying to bake in this transition to net zero and, and, and risks into our financial planning. Um, from a capital perspective, we've been using scenario analysis to, to assess whether we could absorb severe climate risks on, on, on both a standalone basis as well as 
combined with more traditional systemic shocks. But to me, in some ways, this isn't too dissimilar to how we use traditional macroeconomic stress testing and sort of capitalizational capital planning. But I look at climate sciences slightly differently. I think it's more like scenario planning where we're exploring plausible paths around an, a central expectation. Whereas when we look at traditional stress testing, it's more focused on the tail end risks and, and on showing resilience against these risks. So to me, we, we look at climate sciences as being a bit more in the body of the distribution and more to help inform decision making uh, and sort of shaping our balance sheet strategy, where we grow, where we don't grow too much, how much returns we're making, certain, certain areas and others and so forth, rather than focus purely on resilience of the balance sheet. That, that's a really interesting distinction. I like the way you, you described that, because um, I think that's something we hear. Um, we've heard, you know, others in the industry talk about how climate scenario analysis can be can be useful from that um, strategic planning perspective, potentially more than a capital planning perspective in the near term. Um, and I think you described why very nicely there. Um, uh, IIF has written quite a lot about the climate scenario analysis tool, some of the things we would like to see progressed in that space, particularly in terms of increasing alignment around the tool from perspective of supervisory use. Um, Raf, can you say a bit more about any current limitations you experience with climate scenario analysis and what you'd like to see develop over time? Yes, I think there are probably three main limitations I'd call out here. The first one being it's clear and obvious that limitations that is on everyone's mind is uncertainty. Uh, and that uncertainty is in data, uncertainty in models, and uncertainty in assumptions. Um, and I think it, it, this was brought up at the conference as well. I think you recall from the Bank of England's own findings that there's up to 10 times variance in the PDs submitted by participants for, for, for the same counterparty as part of their CBIR stress test exercise. And that's a great example of bringing this to life about how we all perceive the risks differently or we're using slightly different information to, to come out of that conclusion. Uh, and I think this variance is going to be getting, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, especially when we start to incorporate client transition plans and move towards a dynamic balance sheet approach to, to, to scenario analysis. Not only are we dealing with a lot of uncertainty today, but this uncertainty compounds over time as well. So I think I think the uncertainty is one of the big things I'll call out. The second thing, or the second limitation that I'll call out is around calibrating scenario severity, uh, which is really, really important when we're thinking about uh, potential capitalization of climate change through the peer to be scenario uh, assessment framework or whether we're trying to understand the, the size of the risks and whether we take actions today and how severe we make these scenarios for capital education purposes and how, uh, how do we make sure that they are stressed enough is a, is a sort of a limitation. Um, how do we update these scenarios as we progress through time and how these risks materialize is another limitation or complication to, to, to the matter. And if you look at sort of traditional macroeconomic stress scenarios, we, we have historic distributions for severity and we can monitor and adjust severity as we progress through an economic cycle. But what we do for climate or what, what should we do for climate? This is different. It's never been experienced. We don't have historical data. So this, this limitation around calibrating scenarios and their severity is the second thing I'll call out. And the third thing I'll sort of call out in terms of limitation is around breadth. Most regulators and most banks, most of us in the industry 
up to now, I've been focused largely on the loss side, so credit risk in particular. But we need to start looking at other areas, particularly market risk and implications and revenue. So the entire balance sheet needs to be be assessed um, and other sort of material key key um, line items. I think the evolution of that capability is going to be uh, is a limitation, but also another complication for the whole scenario analysis. Thank you, Raf. That's um, that's quite a significant set of of, of you know of, of things to include in the research agenda. I mean, I think work is obviously being done by this. Um, the Network for Greening the Financial System is working on scenarios, and and, and many authorities and and some firms are are, are using those scenarios. Um, those are things that are being you know iteratively. Um, developed. So obviously there there is work underway on this, but some of these challenges I think would need some time to be addressed um, properly. Ben, really interested in how you're using climate scenario analysis in your work at Aviva. Um, you know, what scenarios are you using? What are some of the you know uses and limitations? Sure. So I mean, we're currently um, we currently model uh, four scenarios. So we we model a sort of one and a half. A two, a three, and a four-degree scenario, and you know I think that we're similar to RAF. We're 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 really using those. It's not a it's not it's not about sort of trying to work out a PL shock or a. Um, it's this is more around thinking about sort of long-term profitability or drag on profitability from different scenarios um, over sort of long time horizons, and you know we're looking to try and capture transition and physical risk in those scenarios so we're looking to try and capture the the integrated or in, you know the the cross effects of those two not just looking at transitional physical risk in, in isolation because you know even in a one and a half degree scenario um you are still going to have some physical risk um you know quite significant physical risk actually changes um compared to sort of current conditions and you know, I think that we we are using that analysis um, again to sort of help um, inform not just our you know, risk management to try and understand our exposures and what actions we might take in those different scenarios in order to mitigate some of the potential impacts. But it is really about sort of validating and supporting that strategy. You know, our strategy, our net zero strategy. So we. We've got a net zero. We've got a we've got a strategy to be net zero by 2040, uh, and I think what a lot of this analysis does is it helps us to understand, you know, what what's the impact of different scenarios on our business, you know, and ultimately it's telling us that those sort of extreme physical risk scenarios are going to be the most impactful, um, and they're the scenarios where the risks are, you know, very broad based and therefore very difficult to mitigate. You can't really get the wrong side of a hot house or the right side of a hot house scenario. On, in, you know, conversely, you can get the right side of the transition, so you can, you know, identify and support opportunities um, in a uh, sort of a one and a half or two degree scenario. And we certainly see some upside in those scenarios compared to the the hot house world scenarios where we see no upside. Um, and so I think all all of that sort of analysis and thinking really helps to, as I say, validate and support, you know, our our strategy. And um, and once you get into the sort of the weeds and you can start to you know identify you know potential winners and losers and that can start to help you think about you know sort of your investment and um, underwriting strategies in a more in a more granular way. Um, but at a high level, it's really trying to yeah trying to size the impacts 
of those different scenarios relative to each other. So again, we don't try and come up with absolute numbers for these. There are lots of reasons why you've got to be careful about putting an absolute number in particular. Uh, you know, you don't really, it's very difficult to work out what's currently priced in. So uh, if you don't know what's currently priced in, it's, it's difficult to really assess the, the absolute impact, but certainly you can look at the relative impacts of different scenarios and therefore how you want to position yourselves. And also what, you know, that then leads on to advocacy and engagement. So, you know, it's really telling us that we obviously can't, you know, we can't take actions on our own to get to one and a half degrees. So we have to start to think about how can we engage with others, whether it's governments or regulators or our investee companies or our um, uh, sort of insurance um, clients. You know, how can we encourage them and our suppliers as well to to support the transition to net zero in a world in which our business is going to be sort of less risky and sort of more profitable and um, um, sort of more beneficial and you know it's going to also support our customers as well as broader society so i think that's that's the way we use in our analysis at the moment we found it you know extremely valuable to go that through that process and to engage our boards as well so again we found we found the scenario analysis to be a really valuable and powerful way to really engage boards with sort of the, the topic of climate change and how it you know why why so the so what question um, for boards in terms of what does this mean for them? What does it mean for Aviva as a company? No, that's and I think, you know, you made a really important point there that climate scenario analysis, it can be very complicated and complex, but fundamentally it's a lens into understanding some of these issues and it can be really helpful as a communication device and, and a stakeholder engagement device. So I think that's a a really nice takeaway there. Now I'd, I'd like to bring in my colleague Jeremy McDaniels to join the conversation at this point. Um, Jeremy is another author on the IAF's Climate and Capital Report and was on the ground at the Bank of England conference. Jeremy, what were your top takeaways from the conference and any reflections on all the interesting things we've been discussing so far? Thank you, Katie. Well, I, I would say that like any uh, really great conference, there were perhaps as many new questions uh, raised as as answers or conclusions drawn. Uh, and I, I would say that perhaps my, some takeaways uh, uh, from the conference could probably be grouped into three uh, categories. So first, I think that there was a fairly broad acknowledgement that the capital framework may not be the best tool to respond to climate-related risks at the present time, uh, considering that it was not clear that the benefits of such actions would outweigh both known and unknown costs. And in that latter category, I would put uh, the array of unintended consequences that could potentially arise uh, from the use of different capital tools if not properly calibrated. But I'd say going a bit a bit beyond that, there were a number of really important open questions that were perhaps raised in the conference that, that require uh, further work and reflection. So as Raf and Ben have mentioned, a lot of the issues that are arising uh, in this debate stem from differences between the kind of core design principles of capital tools, which are intended to function over the business and capital uh, planning horizon, uh, and need to be carefully calibrated, uh, and then how those tools would be relevant to climate-related risks, which are in many cases nonlinear. Uh, there are risk factors which are interactive, and they are kind of intertemporal in nature, meaning that we need near-term action to address uh, long-term risks manifesting. I'd say one a key takeaway from the conference overall was that designing the right approach for the supervision of climate risks within the financial system still remains a conceptual challenge at a number of, of levels, considering 
these dynamic relationships between climate risk factors, uh, the economy and transmission channels into the financial system, uh, and the potential for these risks to be exacerbated or mitigated through uh, activities uh, over different time frames. Um, maybe diving in on, on where further work was identified as necessary and on the theme of scenario analysis, I think a few really interesting themes that came out uh, pertained to the scope of risks that would be considered. Uh, we've been discussing a lot about transition risks uh, so far in, in this session, but I think there was a lot of focus uh, placed on, on physical risk issues, including from a number of research uh, institutions that were participating at the conference, um, needing to look at risks that may be quite significant, potentially systemic in nature that could manifest over the next few years. I think reflecting the latest climate science, which is illustrating that we're likely to have more severe uh, climate impacts for a given level of, of uh, average uh, global temperature increase. Um, similarly, I think there was a number of interesting points raised around the interaction of climate-related risks with broader macro risks that could potentially pose financial stability issues or disruptions. And I think in, in many cases, we're kind of working through a lived example of that right now, uh, looking at the energy crisis, um, responses to that, how responses to uh, uh, energy security issues over the near term could perhaps influence responses to climate risks that could have long-term implications. I think as well, I, I really a focus on the, sh the shorter term as opposed to the much longer term for the next round of supervisory exercises and really trying to calibrate what the most appropriate baseline scenario actually is, whether or not we are in fact headed for a, a more kind of hothouse world scenario or something near that, looking at the most recent analysis from the NSCCC uh, and, and UNEP going into COP. It's evident that we're definitely headed for at least 2.5 degrees of, of warming, so we're still far off a, a 1.5 or even 2 degree uh, pathway uh, at present. And finally, I, I, would, I would note that my third takeaway was that there are an, an, perhaps a number of pillars of what this supervisory response could look like, which are evolving, but I would see that the debate will, will continue. Uh, at a number of levels. One question is the use of financial institutions' transition plans in a supervisory context, perhaps as a complement to more top-down scenario analysis exercises, um, really need to continue building risk management capabilities, focusing on the crystallization of risks over that business uh, and, and, and planning horizon, and then uh, finding ways to kind of bring that all together in, in a supervisory context that's also enabling financial institutions to do these multiple levels of analysis in, in an effective way. And I think here the question of really what metrics should be applied is, is looming large. So I'd say those, those are a number of points, uh, but, but definitely the debate is, is continuing. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hand back to you now for some uh, concluding questions. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Um... You, you, I think that was a really nice summary also of the things we've been discussing today. I'd like to close the discussion by looking ahead um, at what more research analysis and practical experience is needed um, to move risk management, transition planning and policy making forward here. So quick fire responses from everyone. Slightly different questions to each of you, though. Raf, if I can turn to you first, what are your thoughts uh, in terms of how we can better quantify climate-related risks to bank balance sheets? That's a good question. Look, I, I think to some extent my, my response to that is to keep doing what we're doing, keep working with the experts on the ground and across industry to improve our knowledge, 
and refine our assumptions and models, um, keep working to improve data quality and, and close those material data gaps that we have, keep sparking the right discussions and plugging climate risk management into core, core bank processes. We're just at the start of this journey and it's going to take time to get to a place where we are fully comfortable. But that said, I would like to point out that I don't think we will ever reach perfection at some stage. We'll need to take a leap of faith. The transition to net zero, or, or actually on the flip side, extreme global warming, is only going to happen once and we, we can't afford to hold out for empirical data or refined and accurate models before we um, prepare for it. So I think we should continue to enhance our capabilities and, and at some stage we will need to acknowledge the limitations and use what we have to, to sort of calibrate our strategies, risk cap time and capture requirements as best we can. Thank you, Raf. Um, I think that's a, a very uh, helpful message um, to end on. Ben, any any reflections on what Raf just said or or any research or analysis you'd like to see to unlock some of the challenges at present? Yeah, I mean, I think that we see one of the key the key gaps and important developments is around um, transition plans. So we know GFANS is doing a lot of work on on uh, climate transition plans. We think you know if we can get you know everybody producing uh, climate transition plans across the real economy, and we can understand how they're proposing to meet net zero targets, and or if they have a net zero target, then that's going to really really help and support you know sort of deeper analysis of of firms exposure to transition and physical risk going forward uh, and that's going to help us then to incorporate and uh, integrate climate related risks into the work we do so i think that's one of the key key development areas i think another area that both jeremy and sort of um Raph touched on maybe in slightly different ways is just comes back to this this idea we have different climate scenarios at the moment we can do analysis on those and we can understand what what the world might look like and what actions we might take in those different scenarios but if you if you want a board to take a decision about how to act ultimately they want to know how likely those different scenarios are um, so i think building up um, you know a view some consensus or developing some views around what the relative likelihoods of scenarios are and what that central scenario is I think is really important if you're going to really embed this into decision making going forward. And that's certainly something that um, we've been looking to do some work with you know, various parties to try and try and understand those relatively likelihoods better. So that that for me would be another another key and really useful area of further research. That's a great point, kind of trying to understand a, a distribution a bit more, I guess. And Jeremy, I'll come to you for closing remarks with a specific spin as well. What would you like to see from the public sector um, as we prepare for COP27 this month in Egypt? I know you're going to the COP27. Sure. Thanks, Katie. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be brief uh, uh, on, on this point. Clearly, material progress at COP27 when we're thinking about strengthening nearer-term reduction targets in NDCs, so specifying the reduction pathway towards 2030, progress on financing, greater focus on adaptation. All of these things can really enable greater clarity and, of course, reduce uncertainty about different future climate transition pathways. As, as, as Raffman just mentioned here, the journey to net zero and by extension, the manifestation of climate risks in the absence of action is irreversible. We're moving into a new state. This is going to happen once. And as these things advance, uncertainty will reduce. The question is whether or not this new state is one of resilience and a flourishing economy or one of ongoing crisis. And of course, 
uh, policy decisions uh, over the near term are going to enable that action and 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 reduce uh, the the band of uncertainty towards one outcome or, or another. And of course, we need uh, to ensure that we are reducing uh, global temperature rise and reducing the risk of catastrophic uh, climate change. So the more clarity we have coming out of COP regarding future emissions pathways uh, and the degree to which vulnerable countries will be able to strengthen their resilience. Of course, here there's a critical question of financing. Um, the better off the financial system, but also regulators will be when trying to think about how these risks are going to manifest from a stability perspective. Um, I would say as well a few other uh, thoughts in terms of future action by supervisors and regulators. Clearly, greater consistency in the metrics that they would be using to quantify potential risks into the future would be really, really beneficial not only for cross-jurisdictional uh, coordination, but also trying to kind of build up to uh, understand a bit more of a global view around the dynamics of these risks, which I think is going to be a really important uh, set of, of narratives and insights that can help then accelerate uh, further policy progress. Thank you so much. And, and obviously look forward to seeing what, what happens at COP27 in the, in the coming weeks and um, some of the IIF's um, analysis of, of the discussions so thank you all very much, Raf, Ben, Jeremy, for sharing those insights. Really enjoyed the conversation. At the IAF, we look forward to continuing our work on these important questions with the global membership um, and also collaborating with our counterparts in the public sector as the agenda progresses um, internationally. We thank everyone for listening to this podcast and hope you all stay safe and healthy. Please consider subscribing to the IIF Global Regulatory Update wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and goodbye.